Hello and welcome to Open Ears from the Open College of the Arts. My name is Desmond Clark. I'm a composer and an artist and an oboe player, and I'm also a tutor on the OCA's music degree course. Welcome to the first episode of Open Ears, a new podcast from the Open College of the Arts. In Open Ears, we're going to explore and celebrate the massive diversity of music making which exists in our world today by talking with musicians from a wide range of artistic traditions and practices about their musical lives. I'm incredibly excited to bring you our first set of interviews over the next few episodes. Our guests include Grammy-winning composers, musicians from jazz, opera, classical and experimental music traditions, and multimedia composers who use music alongside other art forms and senses. Just wait until you hear about the piece of music with a smell component. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to give a little bit more background about the OCA for those listeners who don't know who we are. The OCA offers open access, distance learning, degree-level education. What this means is that our courses are designed for students who aren't necessarily on the traditional academic pathway. For example, our students may not have A-levels or may be coming to the degree at any point within their life or career. They may have other commitments and they may need the course to work around them. To look at what this means in practice, I invited OCA music programme leader Carla Reese for a chat about what makes music at the OCA special. Hi, I'm Carla Reese. I'm the programme leader for music at the Open College of the Arts. Um, my background is as a performer. Um, I'm a flute player. I work a lot with composers. I do a lot of collaboration, developing uh, new repertoire, especially for low flutes. Um, so I specialise in alto flute and I also play bass and contrabass. So I mostly perform. I'm also a composer. I do a lot of improvising. I run a publishing company um, and lots of other things as well. I think OCA is unique, actually. I think the department and what we do in it is very special, very unique. We, we essentially have students who study with us from all walks of life. Some of them come because they want to have a career change. Some of them are retired and have had a lifelong passion for music and want to study it further. Some are also kind of 18-year-olds that are doing their first degree. Um, we're a kind of wonderful community of people. Everybody's very passionate about the subject, the tutors are all practitioners and I think that's incredibly important and we're all out there doing music um, and we can share our experiences of everyday life as musicians with the students. And the, the course is open access so we, we ask for a little bit of previous experience so you know be able to read music or that kind of thing equivalent to grade five theory um, but the idea is that it's open to people to study they have you know lots of flexibility in the time frames for studying um, and we really want to encourage people to be able to follow their passions and study music with us. Yeah, I love that about our course in that people can come and they can they can make it fit around whatever they've got going on in their life. They've got children, they've got jobs, maybe they've got unique circumstances which stop them from doing a different sort of degree. And we can take those people and we can help them fulfill their creative potential. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that's so beautiful about it is that everyone's got such a diverse range of life experience. And that all comes into the community as well. And I really enjoy that when you sort of get people sharing experience from sort of outside of music and applying that and helping to get around problems that they're solving in their own studies. It's just, it's really nice seeing how that works. And I think that's quite different from, you know, a sort of conventional university music department. Yeah, I think it really is. And it is a, it is a very supportive community, isn't it, where the students will come together and work with each other to create new things and, and build on each other's work. And it's it's really lovely to see, actually. Yeah, one of the things I love the most is when we set them challenges. Here's some parameters, go away, create something based on this. And just seeing the different things that people come up with and the sharing of the work and the discussions we have, it feels like a very kind of fertile playground for sort of creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good way of describing it. Thanks, Carla, for that introduction. 
So in this episode, I interview Christopher Tin, an American composer who is best known for his work on video game soundtracks. His piece Baba Yetu was the first piece of music composed for a video game to win a Grammy Award, and he's in fact currently nominated for two more Grammys for Best Video Game Soundtrack and Best Classical Compendium. So good luck, Christopher. In this interview, we discuss Christopher's music, his influences, how he works as an artist, and how he's built a career from lots of different types of work within the music industry. To start with, though, I asked him about how he became a composer in the first place. Hi, I'm Christopher Tin, and I am a composer. I am based in Santa Monica, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. I write music for both the concert hall, but also largely for media as well. Mostly video games, but some films, some commercials, and miscellaneous other multimedia formats. I started in music as a very young child. My parents enrolled me in piano lessons. I really took to music theory, actually growing up, and and that led me down my path to becoming a composer. Um, When I started to take music very seriously, that's when I decided to apply to a conservatory. And um, after doing a four-year degree at at Stanford University, actually actually in English literature, I decided to, to do a graduate degree uh, postgraduate degree, rather, um, in London at the Royal College of Music. Um, and ever since then, I've been living in the Los Angeles area and uh, juggling projects both here in the U.S. and uh, abroad as well, largely in the U.K., in fact. Um, a lot of what I'm best known for is actually my my music for video games. Um, I've written a couple of theme songs that have become kind of popular for the video game franchise Civilization, uh, one of them was a song called Baba Yetu, which is a Swahili setting of the Lord's Prayer. And that actually became the first piece of video game music ever to win a Grammy Award. So that's probably what I'm best known for. Thanks so much, Christopher. Um, I want to do, I do want to talk about uh, Baba Yetu, but I'm curious, how did you end up going from English literature to uh, music in that graduate, postgraduate transition? Well, I think... I was always a musician. And and to be fair, I actually did a double major in English literature and music at the same time. But a lot of what I choose to compose about as a recording artist and and concert music composer is actually rooted in my English literature degree. Um, I tend to turn to poetry, um, um, you know, philosophy, literature, uh, mythology as sources of inspiration. And... um, in a way, I think it's it's very useful for a composer or even musicians in general to have dual interests. I mean, I think my composing degree taught me how to compose, but my English literature degree gave me ideas about what to compose. And that has been very formative in terms of me finding my own voice mm-hmm. as a composer and recording artist. I lean on basically what I studied growing up. Yeah. Uh, and I think that really comes through in your music, actually. I listened to your to your most recent album and uh, settings of speech, famous speeches, of classical poetry, a really wide range of stuff. How did you go from being a kind of presumably keen student of music to actually a practicing professional musician and making a living from making music and composing music? How did that transition kind of work for you? Well, I mean, I think in my mind, I... I was a casual student of music um, all the way until I was in my third year in university. And at that point, you have to declare a major 
uh, we do it differently in the United States. You don't have to declare what you're studying until often your third year. Um, and once I declared um, that that was it, you know, I was committed to making that work, however, by, by any means necessary, really. Um, and what really sealed the deal was uh, when I when I got accepted to my postgraduate course, and I decided to move to London, and I thought, well, okay, this is it. There's, there's no turning back now, you know, there's no safety net here, we're going to make it as a musician. I think right out of the gate, I started building up a network of contacts, of you know, musicians, of executives at record labels, music libraries, professors whom I'm impressed who might lead, you know, send me towards various opportunities, student filmmakers, um, other student musicians, you know, what you immediately want to do is start making yourself known in a mm. way. And that's a useful lifelong skill because so much of making a career in any sort of artistic profession is networking. And it's one of these things where if you're not naturally comfortable doing it, like I was never actually naturally comfortable at networking, you just have to practice like any other skill and get used to it. And I'm not saying that you should go to every cocktail mixer and meet with, you know, every, every film director or editor or producer at a film festival or anything like that. There are other ways to network that might suit you better. Like if you're better at writing emails uh, than most, then maybe networking via email is great or social media. But I think building a network is what really gives you access to professional music opportunities. Um, and uh, that is really what I was looking for before, you know, really jumping into the, the field, right? Starting to know that people wanted to work with me and that I, I could pull in clients and, and collaborators. Um, and there's, you can, it's never too soon to start doing that. I mean, when you're in university, one of the best things to do is to make friendships and maintain those friendships because you never know where those friendships will lead. And they need not necessarily be people who you thought were going to go into a career in the arts. Sometimes, you know, people like your, your roommate, who's a computer science major, might suddenly become a celebrated video game designer and bring you on board their first video game. I mean, you just never know when things like that might happen. Mm, absolutely, yeah. That idea of uh, moving to a new country and enrolling in a, in a new course, and it's kind of like a sink or swim moment, is it? Do you, think, do you think the kind of risk inherent in that kind of pushed you to, uh, to really make sure that it was going to work? I think so, because I had a lot of friends at Stanford University who were also studying music, but were also studying something like medicine or computer science, you know, or engineering. And a lot of them at the time were saying, okay, well, I'm going to go for music, but really, you know, being an engineer is my backup plan. But I will tell you, basically every single one of those who did that, their backup plan became their main occupation. Now, I'm not saying you know, you should do something risky, like invest your life savings into building a studio and try to make music, you know, the only possible avenue out there. But to a certain extent, if you are committed to making it work, and you don't have a backup plan, you're going to find a way to make it work, right? And I didn't really have a backup plan. I mean, my my English degree might have been useful in getting into law school or something like that. But I wasn't, I didn't really want to go into law school. Um, I didn't want to go into law. I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, so I had to make the music thing work. 
And, you know, by sort of depriving yourself of the easy fallback option, you know, it just gives you that extra little bit of motivation that can sometimes make or break a career. Kind of a related question. Um, have you faced any challenges or kind of tough decisions that you had to make in your career? And if, you, if so, how did, you, how did you kind of negotiate those moments? I think I face tough challenges and, and decisions all the time. I mean, that's just the nature of a music career. I mean, a lot of them are, are very difficult questions with, with decades of ramifications. Like, do I sign with a record label? That was the, the biggest, most recent decision I made. And I decided ultimately, yes, I would sign with a label. And I, I signed with DECA. Uh, the the universal label, um, but it was a, a lot of sort of hand wringing. Like, am I comfortable locking myself into a decades long relationship with this record label? And after weighing the pros and cons, I said yes, let's do it. But you will find that your career is just a never ending uh, stream of tough decisions. I think that you have to make, and sometimes you just have to. I don't know, go with your instinct. Um, sometimes you just have to take the risk a little bit. Have I made every decision absolutely 100% correct? I wouldn't say so, but the net effect, as long as you know my, my overall career is trending upwards in terms of visibility, in terms of opportunities, um, then ultimately that's all you can ask for. But you will not make all the right decisions. Um, you simply won't. And you just have to let go of all of the mistakes that you've made. And we've all made a lot of mistakes. You talked about working for digital media, video games, TV, film, that sort of thing. For someone who's only ever kind of studied kind of traditional classical music, I don't really have a sense of how that process works. Like how does your, how do you get, what, what does the brief look like, for example, for commercial work on a video game? How much kind of creative freedom do you have? How much are you working to a very, very specific idea when you're asked to do something like that? Well, it runs quite a wide range of um, creative briefs and tasks that you're, you're asked to do. Um, so I'll take, I'll start with games, for example. Um, with some games, if the music is so integral to the gameplay itself, you might be handed a very detailed spreadsheet of hundreds of tiny little musical phrases that you need to compose that can be assembled together in various formats to create more complete musical ideas and to propel the gameplay forward. Um, there is a game that I scored called Karateka, which is basically a, a, a kung fu game where you had to hit the buttons in time to certain musical cues. So my music would play a, a set of notes and the player would have to then play those notes back in real time on beat in order to punch the opponent, right? And so a game like that, you can imagine that programming and the music are so heavily intertwined that I basically got a huge Excel spreadsheet saying, okay, these are the pieces of music that we need that are one second long. These are the five second long. These are the eight second long. These are the 15 second long. These are the 30 second, you know, things like that. And it's so micromanaged. On the other mm. end of the spectrum, um, I'm often brought on board to score strategy games where players will play for hours and hours on end. And the music just sort of plays in the background and the music has no need to actually synchronize to any of the actions that the player plays. The music just needs to be good music and sit in the background and not get boring to people. And with those types of games, I'm given just a ton of creative freedom. I mean, uh, one example is I scored a, a game called 
um, Old World, which takes place sort of uh, in the cradle of civilization between 500 BC and 500 AD. And the score needed to have strong Arabic music elements. The creative brief was simply give us 60 minutes of music and make it good. And that's it. And it was great because I could just write music. I mean, I love creative freedom. That's why I have a whole side career as a recording artist and composer, uh, concert composer. I, I just love not being micromanaged. You know, <laughs> I love some of these things. Just give me an hour of music and I'll just, you know, just make it good. Mm. And, and that's what I live for. And honestly, video game scoring gives you that more than any other uh, media job. Films tend to be very micromanaged because you have to write music that stays out of the way of the dialogue and supports the action. With video games, they just want something that has the flavor of the theme or the the, the main game. Um, but sometimes you're just given free reign to do what you want to do. I mean, I think, you know, there's a real virtue to letting artists be artists and, and creative people be creative people without, you know, clamping down and, 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 and making them execute on a, a microscopic level. It's, you know, let artists be artists is what I say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you there. What, for you, what's the relationship between the, the kind of commercial music that you've done that uh, we're collaborating with other people, with other mediums, and the kind of, um, for want of a better word, the pure music, the music that's just there to be listened to, albums and stuff, and stuff like that? Because... There is, there is an overlap, isn't there, between the stuff that you've produced, for example, for games and then that is released on albums. And quite a, quite a complex relationship, I thought, when I listened to your most recent album. Um, could you kind of unpack that a little bit? So you're absolutely right that I, I try very diligently to find a way to bridge the gap between my creative work and my sort of um, music for music's sake work, my albums, my commissions, that sort of thing. I find... Part of it is driven by market interest. People who program concerts are often looking for ways to bring in new audiences, for example, gamers, right? So um, if I have a large piece of concert music, like my most recent album release, To Shiver the Sky, where one of the movements is actually a, a sort of a reinvention of one of my more popular game themes, that is a bit of a programming hook that entices people to um, perhaps program the work in their season. And that has worked well for me in the past. Um, and it's just me trying to, I guess, be savvy about the, the and, and realistic, frankly, about the, the, the concert music world, especially here in the US, you know, we don't have the same sort of government funding for our arts agencies as, as you do in the UK. Um, so a lot of people are kind of thinking about, you know, the, the commercial side as well. You know, how do we bring in these, these new audiences? It, and there was a conscious, conscious decision on my part to sort of position myself as a bit of a bridge between uh, the classical music world, specifically the choral music world, and the video game world. Um, and that's why I often try to write the video game music that is choral in nature or can be performed after the video game comes out by choirs. You know, at the same time too, I can't deny that a lot of my best ideas come when somebody's giving me like a, a video game or, or something to score 
and they sort of say, okay, we want something that's kind of big and exciting and makes your, you know, the skin on your, your, your arms rise and sends a tingle up your back. You know, like they, they ask for things that make for good, exciting, listenable music. And so when I deliver that, and I, I spend a lot of time making sure that it's as good as it can possibly be, then it sort of, it's, it's like writing the first movement of a major work where suddenly I can start thinking, okay, well, I've done this now. Maybe we can expand it to be something more than that. Um, and so I can't deny that there is a bit of a, you know, it, it, it's helpful, I guess, to have a, an exterior media project to say, hey, start like this, write this piece of music you know, create this emotion, you know, that, that sometimes gets you over that, that challenge of facing the blank page, you know? Yeah. Some famous or successful commercial composers, I'm thinking of John Williams, have a, uh, an art music line, which is very, very different to their commercial music. And it's almost kind of like consciously distinguishing between the two as if to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a serious artist as well. But actually that idea of coming from a starting point of music that, that, sh- that is appealing and that is designed to be attractive and engaging and exciting, how can that be a bad thing? Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, okay, so I, that John Williams, that's a great example. I mean, I've, I've heard various concerti that he's written and, you know, I, I agree they're very different from his, his film scores. I mean, that said, he's one of the vers- most versatile composers ever. I swear to God, that guy can write anything, right? Um, and so, you know, I, 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 you know, you have to hand it to him. Like, it's, it's not, you know, I mean, there is, I think, an acknowledgement that, yes, I'm writing concert music and so it should nod towards, you know, this modernist tradition maybe or this you know it should be a different sort of beast um his concert music rarely does as well as his film scores do right and i do not have the luxury of being john williams uh on any level who does um who does right oh my god that man is just (laughs) unbelievable for me like you said you know if you've written something that's that works really well and gets people excited and and is is just you know an exciting piece of music and great and people love it um why not continue to do that? Especially in this day and age where concert music takes so many different forms. You know, I don't think, certainly not in the US anymore. We're certainly not in this realm of like, oh, okay, well, you know, Pierre Boulez needs to give you his stamp of approval before, you know, you're played by, you know, whoever, right? Um, but there is, there is a multiplicity of styles, a multiplicity of isms now, you know, who is to say that tonal music won't make a comeback in the concert hall? I would, I would say that it probably has made a comeback in the concert hall, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, and, you know, we also, like I said, here in the U.S., we don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to write music that people just generally don't want to listen to in large numbers. I'm, you know, like, extremely modernist music appeals to a very niche crowd. Um, and, you know, I like that music as well. And most of my friends who are composers do as well. But the general public has not embraced it. And, you know, we've given it a hundred years since Schoenberg, right? So we've, like, it's not going to happen um, <laughs> in terms of widespread adoption. Yeah. As interesting and, and, and as creative as a lot of it is, it's just not going to put seats in the concert hall. Um, and especially here in the U.S., it's often a deterrent to people wanting to attend that particular concert, right? So new music has a bit of a bad rap to it amongst the general public. You can agree or disagree with that, but unfortunately, it, it 
it is a it, it is a thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you know, what do you do? Yeah. I, well, I, I I remember there was an interview with Max Richter where he said, "Oh, I wrote all these you know modernist orchestral pieces, which I thought were great, but you know they get one performance and then that's it." Whereas you know his music now obviously uh, is very very popular. And, and you know he's a very interesting case too. Um, you know, I mean, I think he studied with Berio, for example. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of these these composers. I mean, even people like Ludovico Einaudi, I think, actually had kind of a very formal classical background. He studied with Berio, I think, as well. Uh, Einaudi. Berio, yeah. Well, okay, that makes sense. You know, he's Italian. Um, but uh, you know, I I think actually I think it's really great because you know I, I've been I, I was listening to Berio this morning. In fact, um, uh, his what piece ending to Turandot. He he uh, you know has he wrote a new ending to Turandot a few years ago, um, and you know Barry is very interesting because you know he combines the modernism but with all the sort of refractory sort of look back on on you know all the tonality and all the you know music from the past. It's it's all sort of pulled together in this big jumble and it works very interestingly. Um, of course, I've heard other pieces of his that aren't like that, um, but. I think with Berio, you still get a, a bit of a, a a a gesturally conceived form of music. It's not about fragmentation of just musical ideas, but everything is still very fluid. Point is, a lot of these composers um, who have had that training as well have come to similar sort of conclusions that you know the style that I'm ch- choosing to write in isn't actually opening doors for me. I'm just sort of like putting myself in with a lot of other people who are sort of beholden to a certain style that they think they need to compose in. Um, and consequently, we're all fighting for the same commissions. And once that commission performance gets played, the piece vanishes and nobody ever wants to buy the recording. And now this composer has maybe a thousand monthly listeners on Spotify. And, you know, it's just not like, it's not the most self-sustaining sort of thing yes i mean you're absolutely right i mean i mean i I love that sort of music and i think once you've once you have been trained in it and once you get to know it it's so seductive but at the same time it's so difficult then to teach other people to be able to hear what you're hearing and it's it's a a bit of a commercial dead end certainly anyway i love modernism but let's not so i do too i mean i'm not going to make any money writing it i'll I'll put put it that way yeah, yeah. Well, that's why that's why they all went into. That's why they all became lecturers, and that's why everyone gets taught modernism. Right. Yeah. There's a whole conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have me back on the podcast episode. We can go on for hours. Sounds good. Um, I mean, I would love to talk a bit, a little bit more about your early career. So you, uh, you had a job transcribing orchestral scores by ear. Is that right? That must have been good practice. Oh heck yeah! Um, it was actually a British record label called Silver Screen Records. I'm going to have to give a shout out to James Fitzpatrick who runs ran the label and gave me my first job opportunities while i was still a student um silver screen records specializes in making new recordings of old film scores that have perhaps never been released or just kind of got locked in a vault somewhere um and sometimes they didn't happen to have access to the score and parts of those old film scores and so what they would do is they'd hire someone like me to come in listen to old recordings and basically transcribe note for note everything that you hear. Um, and, you know, depending on the composer, that could be a very easy task. It would be a very hard task, right? I mean, I transcribed a lot of John Barry. Love the guy. Very easy to transcribe, <laughs> you know? 
violins and octaves, you know, every, you know, four bars repeats. And then, you know, you move on to another four bar idea and it repeats. And it's just, you know, very simple, beautiful, beautiful. Um, and then sometimes I have to transcribe like Corn Gold or John Williams or someone like that. And it's just bonkers. And sometimes I was even given, uh, there was never a commercial release of the score. So I was just given like an audio rip from a DVD with dialogue and motorcycles driving over it. And I just have no clue what's going on, but I'm just, I just have to guess, you know, what's going on there. And that's actually fantastic training. Um, writing it down, notating it for the orchestra, and then having an orchestra play it back to you, and then comparing what the orchestra played based on your notation with what was on the original recording is a great way to make a ton of mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Because, you know, as any of us know who have been composers, there's nothing more withering than being around an orchestra that absolutely despises what you've done because, you know, they think you're an idiot and you mark this up the wrong way. Um, that's great training for a young student. So uh, that's how I got my start. Um, and I think that's why when I myself orchestrate, the, the vernacular of my orchestrations tend to come, tends to come very heavily from composers in that romantic tradition. The John Williams, the James Horners, Howard Shores, Korngold, Steiner, you know, those types. Mm. Um, yeah, I can't imagine better practice for instrumentation and orchestration than doing that and then actually having it played back to you as well. So you can hear all the differences. I mean, that must have been amazing. Um, and you also had an internship with Hans Zimmer, is that right? I did, yes, when I first moved to Los Angeles. What was that like? Well, it was great, actually. It was really cool. Um, you learn a lot, but it's tough. Um, the hours are really, really long, even as an intern. Now, that said, it's very different now, the way they've set up their intern program. And by the way, Hans's studio is about four blocks away from my studio. So, I mean, you know, I probably eat at the same taco place as half of his team. But, um, you know, generally speaking, I have nothing but good things to say about my experience being there. It was hard. It was no doubt a lot of work, um, you know, a lot of tension, um, just a tough gig. What sort of but things that did you said, do? Oh, I barely did anything. <laughs> I mean, you know, like if, uh, you know, I remember once Hans had, uh, I think his tonsils taken out and he really needed some ice cream to cool down his throat. And so I went and got him his favorite Haagen-Dazs mango sorbet and took it to his house, you know, things like that. Okay. It could be, or it could be as trivial as bringing him a soy latte at 5 a.m. before he has to hop on a plane to London to record, right? I mean, there are things like that. Sometimes there are file organization things, clean up this room, drive this hard drive to the studio execs across town, things like that. I was an intern. I didn't do a lot. Yeah. That was- said, interns now for Hans do even less. Like, I mean, back then, an internship for Hans meant you would probably get offered a job working as Hans's assistant, which I was actually offered. Um, but also I, I, I had other opportunities to compose and start my own career under my own name around that time. And so I went with those, but I have nothing, to good, nothing but good things to say about learning in that environment. I can imagine it was good for the network development. It wasn't at all. Oh, was it not? Actually. Okay. No, I mean, I'm not there to network with Hans's people. I mean, first of all, what am I going to do? Like, as a as a 22 year old intern, like, sweet talk the head of DreamWorks. I mean, that's not going to happen, right? <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, and and to be, you know, to to your point, the networking opportunities that I had were what pulled me out of working with Hans. 
there is definitely there there's a definitely a way to work for a composer like Hans or you know many of the other composers in Los Angeles where you dedicate your life to them and you work under them and you start working with them and eventually they give you some opportunities um, and uh, it can work out great you know I have some friends who went up under that system and goodness like their careers are are fantastic right now I was maybe a little impatient or maybe I was just a little eager to try things outside of the scoring world perhaps um, and so for me, dedicating my life just to film scoring was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do other things. And frankly, there were some opportunities in other markets that were knocking on my door at the time. Um, cool. So I would like to talk about Baba Yeti. I mean, it's it's a, a bit of an iconic piece, really, especially in the in the video game music world. Kind of when you were writing it, did you did you kind of know that this was a really that this was going to be a really successful piece, like that you'd really nailed the brief when you were writing it, or was it kind of a surprise to you that it that it kind of took off in the way that it did? You know, I, I know the exact moment when I realized I'd, I'd done something pretty good. Um, I the first time I played it for my friends, actually, my friends came to visit, and I said, and they said, "What are you working on?" And I said, "Oh, I've got this song. I'm writing it for this game. It's my first time writing for a video game, so I really want to do a good job." Here it is. I played it for them, and I just watched their eyes light up. And, you know, like about 45 seconds in, when you hit that first key change, they said, oh my God, we love this. You know, just like, and um, I think at that point I realized, oh, I think think I've done it. You know, I think I've done something good here. Thank goodness, because I didn't want to screw that that job up, right? But then I didn't know it would go on to have sort of the longevity. Yeah, and to be fair, I wasn't wasn't writing the soundtrack. I was just writing just two pieces of music for the game, um, Baba Yetu and... Uh, scoring the the opening cinematic that plays when you launch the game. The rest of the music in the game was written by their in-house composers. Um, I got brought in just as a favor by my former roommate, who was the designer of Civilization IV. Going back to this point where you never know who is going to open that first door for you. In my case, it was my roommate, who is a computer science and history major. We shared a room at Oxford when we were overseas students. Um, and he went on to be this great video game designer and he brought me on board, which was awesome. Yeah. That was my lucky break. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. You never know how it's going to come to you. Um, and you had in fact played, you've been playing the previous civilization games yourself. So that probably helped you get some sort of understanding of what the perfect or at least what an appropriate, uh, atmosphere would be. Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, also do the fact that I played the original civilization and, was a fan of that game and logged so many hours playing that game. Yes, I knew the game intimately, but also when I ran into my old roommate at our five-year college reunion, and he told me he was a game designer on the Civilization series, because I was already a huge fan of Civilization, that probably helped make him think, you know, maybe we can get Chris involved in Civilization. He already knows the game. He loves the game. So it was a very natural fit. Mm. And, you know, as you, you probably, as you've probably heard from my music now, I mean, a lot of my music just naturally gravitates towards themes that are, um, you know, sort of comfortable in this idea of civilization and history. And, and, and you know, it, it, it was a good fit conceptually mm. as well. I mean, the critical response to, to that piece is often cited 
in the reading that I've been doing as a kind of pivotal moment in video game composition and then it kind of brought it into the critical mainstream I mean it, they, when you eventually released it on the album it won a Grammy and then they renamed the Grammy to make it more accessible to video game composition is that right how does it feel to kind of like have been pivotal in that kind of um, critical uh, appreciation of, of a new genre of music mm, well uh, hmm. well okay so I am just one, Bobby Yetu is just one sort of point along a long continuum of pieces that made video game music and video game culture more mainstream. And actually, let's, let's give a credit to just the game industry in general. I mean, it became mainstream in the last 10, 15 years or so, you know, <laughs> despite what the internet says, I can't claim a ton of credit for this. I mean, it's just one of these, these unique moments in a series of moments where suddenly you know different audiences tuned into video games and said hey there's you know really legitimate stuff going on here in my case it's because baba yeti was so popular as a choral piece that it just started getting performed a lot by amateur choruses out there you know completely unrelated to its its um, origin as a piece of video game music um and that's what popularized the piece outside of the video game market. Most other video game themes, as great as they are, and there are many, many that I think are just fantastic pieces of music, they're indelibly connected to the video game themselves. Like you cannot hear the Legend of Zelda theme without thinking, this is the Legend of Zelda theme, right? It has no life where people don't know it as you know a piece of video game music. I think Baba Yetu was one of the rare early examples um, where it just became a piece of music that people performed and embraced, not even knowing that it was from a video game. So in a way, it's the reverse of um, your albums in that they make reference to your video game pieces to kind of draw uh, potentially some interest there. This was like the opposite way around. This was a, a piece that was successful as a piece of music and that kind of drew attention to the fact that it's from a video game. So it's like this, this kind of cross... Um, disciplinary approach seems to benefit both sides. And that's what I've been trying to build my career, entire career on ever since then. This idea that yes, these two worlds can sort of benefit from being connected to one another. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not the only one doing this. I mean, I have a, you know, a lot of friends who are also doing concert music, who also find ways to get their video game scores into concert music programs, who are maybe conductors of video game scores, but also conductors of, of, you know, traditional concert music. Uh, you know, there's, there's many of us doing it, but um, you're absolutely right that I have been taking a very, a very deliberate approach to trying to bring those two worlds together because I see value in that. And I think that traditional, the traditional classical music market could benefit from breaking down a few barriers a little bit. Um, as long as the music is good, you know, it, it shouldn't be restrained by, by labels. This is what it, that's how I think of it anyway. Well, I, I completely agree with you there. Is there a particular piece of advice that you received as a developing musician that you would pass on? Or do you have any uh, advice that you would give to young or developing musicians today who perhaps want to pursue a kind of career in the commercial and uh, related spaces that you've done? The advice that um, I had to... Okay, so what I had to learn for myself is that having a career in music is very, very tough. Um, 
mentally, emotionally, even physically. Um, and there are a lot of ways to burn out. And burnout often happens when, in my case, for example, I'm being asked to write a lot of music that I really just do not want to write, or I'm, I'm being given a lot of creative notes on something. Um, and I just start to detach myself from the artistic process because it's like, okay, well, if they want a piano here, then I'll put a piano here. You know, I don't want a piano here, but somebody else told me to make this creative decision. So I'm just going to make it, you know, those little things chip away at your, your artistry a little bit. And the only way that I was able to sort of salvage my sanity and my artistry was to have a side career where I was writing music either for, you know, concerts or as album releases, that was 100% my own music that I got to make all the decisions on. You know, I, I decided very deliberately I wanted an artist career because I want a part of my output to be something that is untouchable by anyone else. And, um, but which brings me to my point. Um, I, I often tell young musicians now, you may not realize it now, but there is often a danger that you will fall out of love with music. It can actually happen, depending on how, the choices you make in your career, what you choose to do, how hard you push yourself. There can be a resentment that builds up and a burnout. And I've seen it happen with a lot of professional musicians. Um, and I find that, you know, you, you just need to find a way to preserve your love of music sometimes. Because all of us got into music because maybe we discovered it as a young teenager and that it became our passion. And, you know, we could, we, we could never live without music being at the forefront of what we do. Um, and if that goes away, if your true love and passion for music is somehow in jeopardy, that is a very dangerous thing. So always find ways to be, stay in love with music, you know, find a, a side project that you don't have to answer to anyone for, or be creative on your own, you know, do, do whatever it takes to preserve that love of music um, because music careers are, are made over a long time frame. You know, a career, you want your career to take um, place over the rest of your life. You don't want to burn out and, and have to switch occupations 10, 20 years after you went into it, right? This is a lifelong journey. Make it as good and um, exciting and comfortable and rewarding as it can possibly be. And always think that, you know, you're in this for the long haul. You will be a musician until the day you die. So preserve that love because that's love will keep you going through all the dark days. And there are many dark days. That's fantastic advice. One final question. Um, what are you working on at the moment? I'm uh, scoring a documentary at the moment and I'm doing an EP of solo piano music um, in support of my next album release on DECA, which is an album called The Lost Birds. It's coming out in September. It features Voces 8, the British choral group, uh, vocal group, I should say, and um, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And we recorded it earlier this year at Abbey Road. And it's, uh, we're doing the marketing for that right now, making music videos, the record labels taking care of a lot of that. Meanwhile, I'm making a short piano EP, uh, piano versions of a lot of those tracks as a additional release to sort of accentuate the main release while scoring a film. So that's my current slate of projects. 
that's quite a lot of projects to go at once, I'd say. Um, and is the, are the piano pieces coming out as presumably music to play as well? Uh, yeah, they will be published as well. Um, that's another sort of maybe, maybe a unique challenge of being a composer slash recording artist. You never just release an album. You also have to release the performable score and parts for that album at the same time which means rarely am I just focused on making a recording and mixing it and mastering and all that. I'm also focused on, you know, the arrangements and the, the engraving of the, the, the score and parts. And I'm an assistant who helps out with a lot of that, but you know, album releases when you're working with a major label are rarely just, you know, put the music out there and talk about it on social media. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into the lead up of an album release and especially if you're a composer as well. A lot of that can involve sheet music. Mm, absolutely. Well, I think that's a whole other conversation that we could get into, but um, we're out of time for today. So let's, uh, let's leave it there. Thanks so much to Christopher for coming and speaking to me. I found that conversation absolutely fascinating and I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you enjoyed this episode of Open Ears, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or a review. This helps us reach more listeners and produce a better show. The next episode will be out soon. Please do subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice if you would like to be notified when it's available. That's it for this first episode, except to say thanks very much to OCA student Christopher Barchard, who provided the fantastic music we're hearing right now. Until next time. <laughs>